Good evening. Um, if you see that title and you think about what David just said, um, I'm, t- I'm going to tell you why I have chosen this particular approach in just a moment. But we uh, actually have a, a lesson tonight and a lesson tomorrow for our uh, kids. And um, we're going to deviate from the theme tomorrow night. Uh, with having our summer series in with Aubrey Johnson. We had all that lined out and um, aligned with our uh, theme for the year, Building Balanced Believers. And so he's not going uh, to be dealing with being able to give an answer for your faith tomorrow night. We didn't want to saddle him with that. Um, so I'm going to be dealing with kind of a hybrid response to the two lessons. So how do you put together Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, and First Peter 3 and verse 15, you flip to neither one of those books. So you go to Second Timothy chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. What I want to call this is, uh, how do we open a window instead of lighting a furnace? Uh, and the reason for that is that we have a task, and that is to be in a fight, but the fight that we're in is a spiritual battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. The weapons of our warfare are not physical, they're not carnal, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And so we fight with different rules of engagement. And yet we are fighting an enemy that would like to destroy all of us. He has powers, he has rulers, he has authorities that are set on, bent on. First, Satan tried to destroy the Christ and and thwart that plan, it didn't work. Then he tried to destroy the church as a whole, that's what the book of Revelation is about. He tried, he failed... And so if he can't destroy the Christ, and if he cannot destroy the church as a whole, we talked about that on Sunday night, the next best thing he can do is to destroy individual congregations. That's what's going on with the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. And he can destroy individuals. Paul says we're not ignorant of his devices. He's a roaring lion, Peter says, running about seeking whom he may devour. That's his goal. That's his intent. And so we want to make sure that we are good soldiers in that on that battlefield, and we understand the nature of that battle. At the same time, in doing that, we've got to not just play defense, we've got to be on the offensive, but how do we find ourselves on the offensive without being offensive? Is it possible to do that? Is that an impossibility? You have to choose one or the other. So with that in mind, that's the direction that we're going. And I thought I would start at a place that was a little bit unusual. I had a copy of a book in my library... Uh, back at a time when it was a little bit more widespread to, to engage in religious debates. Religious debates to try to ascertain uh, truth on a matter. Um, we have a lot of debating going on today. I'm not sure how fruitful uh, it is for us. Um, but what I want to point out is, is that this was on about as controversial a topic as two folks could dispute about in the religious world. Uh, it was a man by the name of Rice who uh, debated Alexander Campbell on the, whether or not baptism is essential. To give you some, a little bit of, uh, of context, this took place in 1843. So we're talking about what, uh, just a little bit less than 70 years after, or about 70 years after we became a nation. It was during a time in our nation's history and actually around the world called the Great Awakening where people were trying to to, uh, study the Bible more seriously. But what was interesting is that you think about that subject today. Is baptism necessary for salvation or not? You ever had a discussion with anybody locally on that matter? 
If so, it's maybe with a friend, it's with a co-worker, it's a family member. Has it ever gotten a little heated? How, how do you think it happens that way? How, how, does, how does it get to be such a, a, a fired-up, contentious matter? What do you think? Okay, and that's a great answer. Elaborate on that, Daryl. When you say it's personal, what do you mean? Okay. And it's, when, you, when you think personal, you're thinking about it's my person. And my person is not confined to me. It's confined to my, it's also inclusive of my history, which is inclusive of people that I love and I know and I care about. And so that can really fan the flames of emotion. You know, what is it they talk about? There's, there's two subjects you just can't uh, talk about, religion and politics, and, and it has the similar effect. Uh, I don't think that's, that's new, but in a way I think it is. Um, Without going into all the trappings of these two men, what I want to share with you was that there was a third party that arbitrated between those two guys who were debating. And this was going into written form. These were the rules of their oral debate and their written debate. Uh, They were asked to follow Hedges' rules of logic. And I'm not an expert on what's involved in that, but I don't have to be because they spell it out. Here's what they say to both sides when they're about to to, uh, dispute the matter, and that, and that has a different connotation today than it did in 1843, when they were going to debate those, that, that idea. There were six rules they had um, to adopt. Rules of decorum is what they were called. Rule number one, the terms in which the question and debate is expressed and the point at issue should be clearly defined that there could be no misunderstanding respecting them. Okay, that's pretty much make sure that you're clear in what you say. It has nothing to do with our attitude. Number two. The parties should mutually consider each other as standing on a footing of equality in respect to the subject in debate. Each should regard the other as possessing equal talents, knowledge, and a desire for truth with himself, and that, and that it is possible, therefore, that he may be in the wrong and his adversary in the right. We've really got a good hang of that today, don't we? Do we have a good grasp on that particular thing that we assume that somebody has as much intelligence as we do, that they have as much um, aptitude as we do, and that they should be afforded the same assumptions that we want them to assume about us? This was written into the debate that they had to follow that particular decorum. Number three. All expressions which are unmeaning and without effect in regard to the subject in debate should be strictly avoided. Let me read that again. All expressions which are unmeaning, we don't use that word so much that way anymore, or without effect in regard to the subject in debate should be strictly avoided. What what, what are they saying? Stay on the subject. Don't get off the subject. Now you think about it. You had a debate with your spouse? We'll say a friendly discussion with your mate? Do you ever get off topic and you move to something else? Now, there may be the rare exceptional person in this room who will uh, lie to me and to my faith. And I'm going to say, we all, we, we, we struggle with that, don't we? Because we don't keep control of and keep in focus what's in front of us. And so they're saying, you stay on the subject. All right, number four. Personal reflections on an adversary should in no instances be indulged. You see what they're saying? Don't, yeah, don't, no ad hominem attacks. That's our intelligent way of saying that today. Don't personally attack the other person. It doesn't strengthen your argument. 
How do we do with that in debate today? All right, number five. The consequences of any doctrine are not to be charged on him who maintains it unless he expressly avows them. In other words, don't tell somebody what they think, what they believe. Because unless they've told you that, you don't know that they do. Would that be helpful in our having discussions with somebody on a a topic as important as religion where we might disagree? All right, number six. As truth and not victory is the professed object of controversy, and by that they mean debate, whatever proofs may be advanced on either side should be examined with fairness and candor. And any attempt attempt to answer an adversary by arts of sophistry or to lessen the force of his reasoning by wit, caviling, or ridicule is a violation of the rules of honorable controversy. Don't be ugly. Don't be insulting. Don't don't resort to name-calling to try to, to, to get your point across. Don't make somebody the butt of your joke. Don't engage in sarcasm uh, in order to try to be more forceful in your argument. Now, beside the fact that they have a lot bigger ca- uh, vocabulary than I have today, um, isn't it amazing how far we've gone in less than 200 years? And all, all we have to do to, to really get a good grasp on, on that is to look at political rallies or maybe to examine political debates, uh, turn on your local uh, cable news show and hear what's being said, and we're going to really be hit with it a whole lot more through social media. And on social media, we're going to find that sarcasm and being condescending can very easily be the, the route that we take to try to get our point across. Um, now, that becomes important when we begin to think about the fact that there are a great many controversial issues out there. What are some of the sensitive subjects that we as Christians may find ourselves engaged in? I've given you a few hints up there. What are some of the things that people want to argue about today? Okay, is baptism necessary for salvation? Now, I want you to think religiously and I want you to think culturally, more specifically, more broadly. Things that you in those mediums that we're talking about may find yourself engaged in talking about somebody who may have a different uh, point of view than you do. So baptism, necessary for salvation. It's kind of a softball in the overall list we're going to be looking at. What else? Abortion. You know, that's, that's the first time I've heard that all year when, when Vivian used that word. Abortion is probably one of the central things right now. And you got, you've got all kind of a ramping of rhetoric going on. And it becomes a part of somebody's political and their social identity uh, as, as much as anything. And it becomes uh, a very passionate point of view that we would say is not being conducted civilly. Uh, on on all counts. All right. So abortion. Okay. Atheism, evolution, and all the 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 um, issues that kind of uh, come out of that, uh, and it can be a very contentious thing for sure. Okay. All right. So what belongs in worship? What doesn't belong in worship? What's authorized and what's not? And that can take in take us in a lot of different directions. That can take us to some of the things that. Um, New Testament Christianity may stand distinct in the larger religious world. 
If we're talking about um, mechanical instruments of music in worship, or if we're talking about women's role in, in worship. So those kind of matters are going to be issues that you're going to be talking with other people about. Um, you, you're avoiding the, the flag up there. I, you know, it's funny. When I was sitting in a classroom 30 years ago, I, I could not have thought that this would be um, the, the issue and it would not have evolved to be the kind of issue that it is. I, I try to be very careful in talking about this, but you know, um, if you mention what the Bible says about sexuality and the way that God has made us and, the, and how God has constructed marriage, and you say it with gentleness and kindness, you may still run the risk by even mentioning it at all of being seen as hateful and ugly and um, the words that are associated with that. Now, we're going to talk about the things that we can control and the things that we can't control. The things we can't control, we leave to God's hands. We leave to uh, the realization that we can't control them, but we have control over some other things. Um, I have a few other things, marriage, uh, divorce, uh, and remarriage, some other things like that. So, you know, we can put a finer point on this. But what happens? What are the ground rules in our having discussions with one another. And has God given us some ground rules to know how we speak to people on whatever the controversial issue is or whatever it is where we might disagree with somebody? Has He given us some guidance on how to go about that? I think He has. And I want us to spend our time looking there for the next several minutes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. If you have a Bible with you, turn over there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. Paul says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now this is the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes, and it's right before he instructs Timothy. And by the way, what, what was Timothy's job? He was an evangelist. But the principles that he's sharing here and that he's going to share later on are principles by extension and application that apply to all of us. If we're sharing Christ as we should be, I want us to think evangelism and not so much the preacher's responsibility. The preacher should model it. You should expect that from Hiram and David and from me. But it's something that all of us should be practicing in our day-by-day interactions with others. But in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, at the very end of that last letter, he says that you are to instruct people with great patience. Uh, and in the first letter, if you turn over to 1 Timothy for just a moment in chapter 6, Paul has given him some other instructions. And the idea that how you share the Word of God is just as important to God as what you share from God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 4, he says, If anyone advocates a doctrine not conforming to godliness, he is conceited and he understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved minds and deprived of the truth. So what, what fuels furnished style evangelism? According to what Paul says here, 1 Timothy 6. Four through six. What fuels a furnace style evangelism? Look at furnace style. Heat instead of light. Pride, being unkind. Okay, where'd you see that one? 
All right, lacking knowledge, corrupt mind, knowing nothing. Um, I just kind of I, can, I distill that into three things: conceit. Don't you love when somebody comes at you with arrogance, ignorance? Sometimes we don't know what we don't know, and it, it can be apparent to everybody else. If we are contending something that we're not ready, 1 Peter 3.15, to be talking about, we need to bone up on that before we try to engage somebody. And then here's the other one. This is the sign of our age, a morbid interest in controversy. There are some people who love it, are drawn to it, and will do everything they can to get other people to come right alongside of them. Now, if you will, turn to Titus chapter 3 for just a moment. Titus 3, verse 9 through verse 11. And Paul speaks to another uh, who technically is engaged in full-time mission work or in his evangelist. But it's a principle he wants everybody to be following. In Titus 3, beginning at verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious... Anybody have another version? What do you have for factious? Divisive. Reject a divisive man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Who's he talking about? Somebody living out in the world with no kind of godliness in their life? He uses some pretty strong language. What, what fuels a furnace-style evangelism according to, to Paul to Titus in Titus 3? What are, the, what are the characteristics of it? What are the end results of it? What does he say about it? Look, look at verse 9. Okay, that's the, that's the bottom line. They're condemned. In doing this, they're, they're pursuing a religious matter, but they're doing it in this way that he says not to do it. They're going to be condemned in the end. What, that's the irony of ironies. But what else does he say about them? Uh, unprofitable. And useless. That gets my attention because I want to be a conscientious servant of Christ. And I want to know that my efforts matter. And if my efforts in trying to reach out to share the gospel with somebody else has the Holy Spirit saying there's no profit to it, I've, I've not only wasted my time, I've wasted somebody else. It's worthless. It's vain. It's empty. What else does he say about it? Verse 11. It's perverse. It's sinful. And it's warped and condemned. And so what I want us to do is look at four things tonight that can help us as we strap on the armor to fight against the spiritual forces and wickedness of this world and to do so ready to give an answer, but make sure that we're generating more light than heat. We want to open a window. We want to generate light. That flame may have some light, but it's more heat than light, and it's not going to accomplish what the Lord wants us to accomplish. So I want us to notice that four things are necessary. Number one, we've got to have the right mindset. And Paul's going to tell us about that in verse 24 and 25. Um, how many of you have ever heard of a condition, we have some medical folks in here, called angel man syndrome? Anybody know what that is? It's apparently a chromosomal um, condition that's more common in the UK than anywhere else in the world. In fact, they only know of a thousand that have the, uh, the kids, and it strikes kids that have it. They don't really live to be very old. Uh, it causes severe learning disabilities, but it's marked by by something very specific. Anybody familiar with the the actor Colin Farrell? He's got a son who has it. Um, one of the characteristics because of the condition is they have a permanent grin or smile on their face. In fact, the boy's mother said that at first we just thought we had a very happy baby. We didn't realize it was a more serious matter. 
Now that's sad. That's tragic. When it, it's it's a terminal condition when we're talking about this physical thing. But it made me think when it comes to sharing the good news of the gospel. More often than not, shouldn't we have a smile on our face when we're doing that? Shouldn't we be conveying a happiness, a joy that we feel? And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Look, as you go out and you try to make contact with people, they need to realize that, that it is there's something more serious going on, but it's something that causes you joy. And how do you get to the bottom of understanding how you can have the right mindset? There's two things I want us to notice from verse 24 and 25. If we're going to have the right mindset, we first must not be quarrelsome. We must not be intense and bitter in the way that we go about things. The Apostle Paul in verse 23 says that quarrels are produced by speculations. And that's the same word that he used and he translated controversy over in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 4. On my, in my Bible class on Sunday morning, I talked about how these folks with the Colossian heresy, they were pressing their scruples, their opinions as doctrine. Uh, and I made the point that we all have scruples, we all have... Uh, things that we uh, feel very strongly about. We have very strong religious opinions. Uh, and a lot of times what happens is, is that we press these. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying that you must not be quarrelsome. You not, must not be in a mind to try to press those things that God will not allow us to press in His Word. And, and I'm, I was very vague about that because we had a, lot, a very short class and a lot to cover in that. But it's important for us to deal with what are some of the scruples that we have that we've got to be very careful about pressing on someone else. And, I, and help me with that list. What are some things that belong in that category that don't matter eternally that may be very strong opinions that we have on matters? I realize that that's a very dangerous thing for me to ask. Of here. I, I catch that up front. And if I give you a little pushback on something you say is a scruple that I can show you in Scripture, we'll do it in love and I'll have a smile on my face, Okay. But there are some things sometimes we think and we want to press as, as truth that aren't really there. And we've got to be very careful about being divisive when we're reaching out to people, especially with the gospel, and we're saying it's truth when it's not truth. Y'all are scared to death. I, I understand that. All right. So let me, give you, let me give you one that I think is going to be about as thorny as it. Go ahead, Mike. You, angels fear to tread. Just remember that. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, that's, that's, that's a good start. I think it'll, especially, you jumped in front of mine. I'm glad you did. Okay, that's, um, we, um, we, we, where I preached before, we decided, uh, on a temporary basis to have the preaching first and then the Lord's Supper. And I may have mentioned this in the Bible class, and a man I greatly respected was, was upset about that. Um, and, and, and the point we were, the, the effort we were trying to make is to say, the acts of worship are prescribed. The order is not. It can change. And perhaps there's some wisdom in our saying from time to time we need to change that so people understand that this is not codified in Scripture. That it, it can be done in a different order. You can, you can have the preaching the very first thing. We do that with now and Sunday. I think we're, we've kind of figured some of that out with, with our, our singing service. We preach right out the gate. Right, and we've kind of that's kind of evolved some. Those things aren't aren't nailed down. The scruple I mentioned, uh, I talked about. I think sometimes we have stronger feelings about things than others do. I, I probably have a greater scruple or uh, a tighter standard about uh, modesty than some others do. 
And in that subject, there are some things, I think we would all agree, that are clearly wrong. Wouldn't you agree there are some things that are clearly wrong? Nudity. Would we all agree that's wrong? That that's immodest? Okay, so I know there's, there's certainly a line in from that, but I'm saying we all agree there's things that are certainly wrong, and there are things that are certainly acceptable, right? I think we can go around the room and say pretty well, we're pretty well modest, right? We may have scruples about where that line is between those two. But we need to be very careful that what it is that we say is right or wrong is established in Scripture and it's not, maybe it's a good guideline. Maybe it's a helpful suggestion. And I, and I say that preaching to me because I've I got to be careful because that's a scruple that I have. Now, it should be easy from here. I've given you that. What are some other things? Second Amendment. That's in the Bible, isn't it? Got strong feelings about that? I do too. Are you willing to, to have a soul separated from Christ eternally and fighting somebody over it? I'm not. What else? All right, I'll do all the work. <clears throat> all right, it is safer that way because I don't have any idea what you're going to say. How about this? Educating your children. You may not know this, but we homeschooled our kids. All three of them, from the beginning to the end. If you ever spend a lot of time around them educationally, you might see that you can tell who their teachers were. But the thing is, we, we, there's a lot of things that went into that. We're not crusaders. And we never said this is the way. And if you're not doing it this way, you know, you're, you're not as spiritual. You're not as righteous. It was a choice we made. We weren't revolutionaries about it. Because we can't be. Um, what movie ratings are acceptable? So here's another one of those. There's some clearly wrong. There's some clearly right. We've got to be very careful about pressing what Scripture doesn't say. There, there, there are principles that guide us in some of these things. Since I'm still here and I'm not struck down yet, let me, I'll catch you in a second. What political party to support? That doesn't strike us in Kentucky, does it? Be upset either way on that, huh? I've heard statements. Oh, by the way, equal opportunity. I've heard it from both sides. Is that really what we want to put in front of the gospel in trying to teach somebody how to be a New Testament Christian and go to heaven? See, I, I think sometimes, man, it, we, our life is all one thing together and we have a hard time untangling and, and sitting back and saying, here's some instruction for me. I don't want to be quarrelsome. I want to be very careful about how I approach somebody so as not to let something that's not tied down in Scripture and clearly laid out for me, let that get in the way of somebody obeying the gospel. Paul says, don't be quarrelsome. Now, there are some things you're going to teach on, no matter how kindly you do that. I, I, I've heard stories in the last three to six months. Sometimes you feel ganged up on at work, and it's on the subject Mike's talking about or something else. And people find out where you go to church, and they're ready to pick a fight with you. And you can be as kind as you can, but if you stand where the Bible says, then there's going to be upset. Let the gospel do the upsetting, and not our attitude and our response to it. Yes, sir. All right, good. I'm always I'm always up for that. You're talking about even for like worship and VBS on Tuesday night. Same God. 
Same, same, same auditorium. Yeah. But, but, but by the way, let me just say this. If you wanted to wear a suit, you know what we shouldn't do at all? Don't give them a hard time. Don't, don't make a judgment about them because it works the same both ways. I, I choose to wear something close to a suit and or tie on Sunday morning. Not because I, I think, not because I'm the preacher and I've been told and I'm grateful for that by a vast majority that I don't have to do that. And I'm grateful for that. I, I do that because I feel like that's not going to be, unless I let it be, it's not going to be my barrier between somebody who maybe doesn't have a church background or who, who doesn't, um, uh, I, I'm not going to try to make anybody feel uncomfortable. But I think that the, the suit is not going to do that. And yet it makes, so I've tried, I think it's the most peaceful way to, to solve that without being offensive. But I could, I mean, and Sunday night, I've done that for years, and I've done it here since I've been here. I won't preach with a, a coat or a tie, uh, almost ever. And I don't think that you're liberal or anything else. Nobody's ever. Maybe you're waiting on Now, I'll hear 50 of them now. But nobody to this point has ever said, hey, you know, what, what are you doing? Where's your coat and tie? We, we've got to be careful. Another one's versions, real quick. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to read out of the King James. I heard somebody say it's good enough for Paul and Peter. It should be good enough for us. Well, we know that's not the case. Um, and if somebody is a King James only and they try to tell us that there's something wrong with a newer translation, um, first of all, they they probably don't know what they're talking about. But second, that's that shouldn't be something we put between somebody and obeying the gospel. On the other side of that, if somebody uses the King James, we shouldn't be making prejudgments about them. That. that we shouldn't give them any harder time than we do somebody who uses the ESB or the New American Standard Bible. Yes, sir. So, so let's let's think about this in terms of two fronts in which we find ourselves as ambassadors for Christ, with one another, and with those who are lost and from the world. I really don't have to plow a lot of this ground because we had a real good lesson on James chapter two, in which we talked about some of this. But it is helpful for us to realize that we're, we're trying to reach those that are lost without... Comp- and I'm going to get that's point two, I think, if we get there. I didn't think this point would take so long. But the message can't change. What the Apostle Paul is, he says that you're going to guide them into the truth. It's not subjective, it's objective. There's an objective standard. And we've got to make sure that what we are presenting is the truth. And we need, sometimes heat comes when we don't really know the Bible and our emotions and our opinions get in the front and our book, chapter, and verse get lost somewhere way back in the back of that. And and so we're talking about not compromising the truth but realizing that that battle's being fought on two fronts. Yes, sir? Okay. All right. Mm Mm-hmm. I hear your question. Let me answer it for you. If I get there, um, we've got to be careful about assigning anybody's motive and trying to read anybody's heart. So I don't think it's fruitful sometimes for us to wonder why somebody gets upset and angry. There's a there's a ten thousand potential reasons why. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's about five questions in there, and I, and I try to. But I hear you. You just this, this, this coming off the spout. I, I think sometimes we, we get we get in trouble because we get out of order. 
I think there's, there needs to be a foundation. Some of these discussions are going to forever be fruitless because we're not having them in a context. We're trying to jump in the middle of the stream. I'm a poor swimmer. You throw me in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, I'm in trouble. But I'm okay closer to shore if I can work my way in. I think a lot of times that's a discussion that needs to be had much later on because um, you're dealing with, with, a, with a symptom rather than an underlying uh, issue that's broader than those particular issues that you mentioned. Some of what you asked, though, is going to be dealt with here going forward, so that's a good segue for me to move ahead. Um, we also must be kind to all. We need to be kind to all. Um, I think I've probably mentioned this to some of you in, in some setting. Um, in 1980, my dad was preaching for a congregation, and he baptized um, a black lady. that we I just remember his Sister Perry. And in the congregation where he was, the members demanded that my dad tell Sister Perry to go to the next town where there was a black congregation. And dad refused. Uh, dad lost his job. In the same month, I didn't know this till many years later, a preacher friend of mine, his dad taught and baptized a black couple uh, in a neighboring state where we were. And that was on a Friday night. And the elders told him to pack up. He would no longer be in the pulpit on Sunday morning. And so two days later, he was gone. Now, again, I don't know hearts, but I, I don't think those folks had conquered what Paul said about being kind to all. And in fact, you have scripture who tell, tells us about our making sure that we don't, in our reaching out to others, that we don't put up barriers that scripture does it, whether it's age or if it's apparent income, or if it's race. Um, there, there are any number of things that we might arbitrarily say. And, and Peter had to learn this lesson. It wasn't easy for him, right? In Acts 10 and verse 34, he says, Of a truth, because God helped him with a vision that he had to send him three times, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears God and works righteousness is accepted with him. He's trying to, to get the, the, the word out that the, the gospel is for all. And James is dealing with a different issue in James 2, 1 through 5. He says, don't have the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with a spirit of personal favoritism. If somebody comes into your assembly with a gold ring and fine clothes, and someone else, a poor man comes in in dirty clothes, and you say to the man in the fine clothes, sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man you sit over there or you sit at my footstool have you not become judges with evil motives and shown favoritism among yourselves has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs in the kingdom of God we're to be kind to all do we show partiality to the good looking and the well to do and the family age visitors and do we ignore the apparently poor and the plain and the alone-looking person who doesn't seem to fit in with us? We've got to move beyond prejudice. The Apostle Paul says in our dealings with others, and the best way he could uh, give us an analogy for this is to say in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, When I was among you, I was like a nursing mother with an infant. Man, you think about the care that you're taking towards someone when you're like a mother with a helpless, dependent baby. That's how we ought to see our interactions with those around us. Paul says there's, a, there's an approach. When you go into a discussion with anybody, you've got to make sure that you have told yourself before you get there, I'm not going to quarrel with them, and I'm going to be kind to all. I'm going to treat everybody the same. 
I'm going to make sure that I focus on everybody the same in, in order to do that. I've already mentioned number two a little bit, so I'm going to be very brief about it. We've got to have the right message. Paul says, be able to teach. And earlier he has said, I want you to be one who handles the Scripture accurately. He says, I want you to be diligent to uh, rightly divide the, the Word. Be skillful in its use. And the better we know what the Bible says, the more light and the less heat we're going to produce. We won't fall on emotions. We won't rely on personal opinions. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 for just a minute. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 through verse 7. Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculations rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanted to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand what they're saying or that about which they make confident assertions. And what I say is some people, uh, what they share is the strange. They like to go for that esoteric thing. They love to be the one in Bible class to bring, or not, not, not this Bible class, but Bible class I've been in in the past. They like to get on some little side trail somewhere and talk about some obscure thing instead of getting right down in the meat and potatoes of the Word. Also, the things that are speculative. What if? You know, I don't want to get to an answer. Let's just ask a bunch of questions. They stray from what is the truth. And then a self-superior. They make confident assertions. They like to be the smartest one in the room or the smartest one in the discussion. Paul says the message matters. What we deliver must be truth. Six times in 2 Timothy, Paul mentions the truth. There's a definite article in front of that. It's an objective body of material. And so the word is still the, the lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway. The commandments are a light and reproof for life. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 23. So if we would generate light rather than heat, and this goes back to the question you ask, we've got to share a message that that people understand is being delivered in love, but is the truth. Ephesians 4.15, I think we've all heard that. We're to speak the truth in love. It's, it's spoken in the context. There are three things that we're trying to accomplish in the right message. We're trying in the right message to get people to repent Paul says to know and to escape. We're kind of trying to help them to change their mindset, to be in the mindset of Scripture, to know what it is that God has said, but to what end? Not to win the argument, not to come out and say, my church is better than your church, but to help them to escape from the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Notice just very briefly. In Ephesians 4.15, that message, speak the, the truth in love, it leads one to repent. He says you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. That's repentance. Ephesians 4.17. It leads one to know. Don't be darkened in your understanding. Ephesians 4.18. You have learned Christ a better way. Ephesians 4.20-22. And it leads one to escape. He says you're renewed. You've put on the new man. Verse 23 and 24. You see... Opening a window and not lighting a furnace is not about compromising the truth. It's about handling it in a loving way. All right, just very briefly. Number three, have the right method. If you think right and you teach what's right, then you've got to give some thought to your technique. There was a man that, the first eldership I ever served under, there was a fellow who was this barrel-chested World War II and Korean vet, uh, war vet. 
And I was with him one night when we were studying with this huge, burly guy, big, big blue-collar bruiser guy. He says, after studying with him, he said, you know if you go home tonight and you die in the state that you're in, you're going to be lost. He's pointing up at him. And I thought, we're going to have a fight right down here in the fellowship hall. And another night I was sitting with him as he was sitting with a couple who were subject to, they were about to practice church discipline with regard to them. We said, you know that, he said, you know that you're going to be separate from Christ as you sit here tonight. People loved him. Now, now some of that's a gift. Some of that's, but there's a temperament, there's a personality head. You never saw him without this indomitable grin on his face and this twinkle in his eye. You knew he was convicted, you knew he was passionate, and he spent time and, and money and all resources in people's lives helping people all the time, and it made it easier for him to be able to say those hard things and those difficult things. The Apostle Paul says, as you invest in people and as you employ the right method, we need to ask ourselves what that method is. And he shows us, first of all, that opening these windows requires patience. Do you see that in verse 24, that we're to be patient? That's actually one Greek word that's translated patient when wronged. So this is not just tolerating people. This is keeping your cool when somebody does something wrong to you. It's the turn the other cheek mentality of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31. It's when somebody in a religious discussion with you says something ugly, hurtful, mean. It's being patient when wronged. It's following the example of Christ. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For even hereunto were you called that like as Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example, that we should follow in His steps, who did no sin, neither was there any deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, reviled not again, when He was threat, suffered, He threatened not, but He kept on committing Himself to Him who judges righteously. That's how we've got to respond when somebody is uh, ugly with us, and they're going to, if we're going to talk about those controversial things that were uh, a part of what we said a, a moment ago. Opening windows also requires gentle correction. Can you tell if somebody's gently correcting you? How can you tell? I, I mean, we, we benefit. I, I played football, and Coach Vaughn had... He did not have gentle correction. He did not. He didn't even know this was in the Bible. And, and there are ways in which I benefited from that. But on the whole, do you want to go through life having the entirety of the correction that's pointed your way being harshly given? Do you respond well to that? Do you respond well to that, knowing that that's how God? If you think that's how God's attitude is towards you, and and so there are some ways we can tell if the the correction is gentle. Tone. You can tell by how somebody is saying what they say to you. Brother George Bailey used to say, if you're not kind, you're the wrong kind. Excess. Some folks keep their hobby horse well fed and ready to gallop, and they're ready to just trot it out at every moment. We've got to be very careful about hitting the same thing over and over again. Third, assumptions. This kind of goes to that. Don't assume somebody's heart, somebody's motives, and what's going on with them. Choice. Be very careful that you're not making a mountain out of a molehill. Choose your battles very carefully. Don't minor in the major, major in the minors and minor in the majors. Don't swallow that gnat and then choke on the camel. And then there's your heart. Sometimes we can start off with a good intention and trying to defend the faith, and the next thing we know we get lost in those pursuits. That was the Pharisees. They were zealous of the law, but somewhere along the way they lost sight and it, and it affected their heart. So you see that uh, tone, excess, 
assumption, choice, and heart. If we're going to teach, we've got to make sure that we do so with the right spirit. Paul says what it is in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if any of you are overtaken in a trespass, let you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then finally, we need to have the right motivation. Paul gives it to us. What is the right motivation? We are moving so as to help them to repent, to know, and in their knowing to make sure that they can then turn around and escape the snare of the devil. I appreciate somebody who truly cares about me and knows and I know wants the best for me. I have a hard time listening to somebody who conveys the idea that they have it all together and I'm a hopeless sinner. You know, I appreciate somebody who comes alongside me and, and speaks to me as fellow struggler to fellow struggler. I don't know who it was that's attributed with the idea that evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's our motivation. We're not coming from a one-up position with anybody. We're moved in trying to help them to turn away from the world, to, in turning away from that, know what God's will is, and to escape the snare of the devil. All right, so as we close, I want you to think about this. In 2001, there was a man who went up to the top of a building in New York City and was distraught about his girlfriend. She was going to leave him, and he was going to just end it all. And the police got out a bullhorn and they're yelling and they're screaming for him to get down and they seem to be making no headway whatsoever. Somewhere along the way they found out the man was deaf. And that changed everything. They went and they found a deaf teacher in a local school and they got him to go up and to, to communicate with the man and he signed a message that convinced the man not to jump off the ledge. How was he effective when nobody else was? He could speak the man's language. And that's what God gives us as a task. Our task is to have the mindset, to have the right message, to employ the right methods, and in doing so be properly motivated. We will generate a lot more light and a lot less heat. It will help us to be good soldiers of Christ who are ready to give an answer to those who ask us. All right? Appreciate very much your attention. Uh, We'll count ourselves dismissed until our kids come back inside.